So um, welcome back, everyone. It is your host, the Zenith, or Zenith, as Margaret would probably call me. <laughs> My lovely host today is returning guest, Margaret Agard. Margaret, as if you don't know, Margaret is a Christian mystery, a very, very interesting person. She's also uh, currently, um, as of reading this book, president of the Relief Society, which is helping the sick and afflicted. She's the author of two current books, the In His Footsteps series. The first one we already had a previous interview on a long time ago. It was how I gave her my over my to-do list to God and got more done. And the second book, which we were going to discuss today, which was emails from the mission field, things I learned from serving. So, Margaret, very, very warm welcome. I really, really wanted to catch up with you again from what seems to be a lifetime ago to discussing this book. Um, I found your first book so funny and so irreverent and so self-depreciating that uh, it really did make me chuckle and was just such a pleasure to read that uh, I, I have been looking forward all this time to reading your second book to see what that's about. And um, hopefully we'll have a good interview today. So hi, are you and have you been? Oh, good. Happy to be here. We finally got the COVID and got that out of the way. So now we've got all those antibodies, right? <laughs> and um, yeah. And looking forward to our discussion. I've been looking forward to it for a few weeks. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. So am I. I never even thought of that, to be honest, you know, because uh, I don't even know the time periods in this book, um, whether or not, you're, you know, your decision to become uh, missionaries happened over COVID or where did COVID land when you and Parker decided to become missionaries? And how did that affect, you know, your uh, interaction with your community and new congregation and stuff like that? No, this was this book was written um, like six or seven years ago, and it happened right. like a few years before that. So this it's been a while since we were there. All right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, that gets out of the road anyway. So your your second book is mostly all about missionary work. It's it's very different from the first book, and it's I'd say it's split into two distinct parts. Um, one where you, you know, Parker, uh, volunteer for a lot of the time, most of the book is spent in Flagstaff, Arizona, before then you are called to service in Alaska. So those are the two main parts of the book which we kind of want to talk about today and some fascinating tales. But I guess, um, <clears throat> I don't know whether maybe I've forgotten about it or whether I <clears throat> it wasn't mentioned in the book, but obviously the first Part of the book is where you and Parker have just made the decision to sell up your house, the house that he actually built, um, and live out of your 87 Camino. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, and decide to become missionaries and, and learn Spanish. And as I said, maybe I missed it or maybe it wasn't in the book. How did that come about? What prompted that? You know, how do you go from that lifestyle, that Massive life change to go from that lovely, beautiful house with the peacocks that always landed on your roof to sell up that house and pretty much everything you own and take this incredible journey to become missionaries. Well, we, we even when we first met, knew that we wanted to do that. And I still had some kids at home to be raised. So we talked about that for years until they were out of the house and then we're like, okay, is now the time? And, uh, you know, Parker was always helping other people. I thought he was never going to actually finish that house. <laughs> he finally finished it so that we could sell it. And actually, it was interesting because 
we were praying about should you know like should we sell it should we just keep it and have the neighbors keep a watch on it while we spend a few years you know serving as missionaries or should we rent it and and it was interesting I happened to be at the church and I was praying in my in the Relief Society room and I had the thought you need to just sell it just sell it and get rid of everything except a few basics and when I came home um, Parker had been down in his greenhouse and he came up and he said you know I really have been praying about it and I really feel like what we need to do is just sell it and so we both got that answer on the same day that this is what we should do and we did it's interesting uh, when we did it it was during one of those times when housing prices were going up and up and up, you know, because they do that, right? They go, oh, and then they crash, and they go, oh, and it was not even at the top. People would say, you waited another year, you could have twice as much for that house. Yeah. And um, But we thought, yeah. well, you know, God will take care of us. We got what we got, right? And so when we came back and we, five years later, and bought another house, um, people are like, I can't believe you got that house for that price. And God's like, well, you know. <laughs> We're willing to sell the house for less than you could have gotten, and I'm just giving you a gift back. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of like um, you know that when you give something away with a good heart, or when you do follow that instinct, you're always rewarded for it, isn't it? I think so. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't look like it. What, what is that saying? You know, um, no good deed goes unpunished. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know. It's it's kind of the journey along the way where you kind of go. How is this going to work out? What we, I'm sure that must have been prevalent in your mind, you know, that this is going to come to an end at some stage. And, you know, we are going to have to uh, use what kind of uh, little funds we have because there was so much expenses along the way. We're going to have to potentially come back to the U.S. again and find a house that's going to. I'm sure that was prevalent in your mind the whole the whole time. Was kind of, but we did. We actually had a small business that kept going. We had people running it while we were gone, so we knew we'd have oh, some yeah, income yeah. when we got back. And and Parker was old enough that he had some retirement income, so we we felt like okay, we can we can handle this. I, I guess I didn't worry so much about that. It was more because Parker and I do quibble a lot, and every time we talked about where we were going to live after this was all over, we'd end up fighting. And so it was like, okay, we can't talk about this. <laughs> I was like, hmm, um, he's open to anywhere. And I was like, it has to be near some of the kids. But, you know, he's a guy. As long as he has his wife, he's happy. Where I'm a mom. I'm like, no, I want to be near the kids. Yeah. And obviously, uh, when you were, you were you were waiting on that call from, um, from your superiors, uh, I guess, uh, you had this idea that you wanted to go to Peru. That was your that was your dream location. You were going to go to Peru. Oh you were going to speak Spanish. Yes. Since I was like in my twenties, I thought one day I'm going to be able to go serve missions, you know. And I want to go to Peru and speak Spanish, right? And then we got this call, and it was to Flagstaff. And we thought, huh, all right. And then, um, well, there were some reservations near there, so we were trying to learn yeah. Navajo or something. Right. And Spanish was a big part of what we wanted to do. We really wanted to get immersed in Spanish and learn that language. And um, and then like a week or so later, we were talking to the mission president over the area where we would be serving. And 
and he asked why we were learning Navajo. Like, did we already know Spanish? And it turned out our letter didn't say that we were going to be serving the Spanish people. His did. And so that's how we found out. We actually, we weren't in Peru, but we were going to be um, serving with Spanish pe speaking people, which turned out we were terrible. <laughs> we got better, but never really good. Um, yeah, it was like, well, here's, here it is. And uh, you, you prayed for it. You want to speak, you've got it, but good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Why Peru? But was there a particular reason? You know, it's just Peru, one of those like kind of bucket listy things or? I think for me it was. I don't think um, Parker wasn't particularly, he didn't care where, as long as it was Spanish speaking. Mm -hmm. Where I was all about Peru. It was kind of like, oh, I want to see Ireland because I saw too many Irish Spring commercials growing up. You know, it's like, oh, like, so, yeah. So somehow I had it in my head. I wanted Peru. I had no idea. Did mm -hmm. I want to wear those little hats? I don't know. That wouldn't be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting. And, and the thing about it was was that when you got the call to go to Flagstaff, you had to make this thousands of miles of journey, and we're, we're kind of not going to get into it, but there was such a series of events. Even when I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, this couldn't get any worse. Your car kept breaking down, and there were out oh. hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it was just like... I guess if anyone kind of didn't know them, goes, she has to be making this up. There's no one who can have that amount of bad luck. <laughs> but it, you got that message to say, look, this is going to prepare you. It was a foreshadowing of all the trials that you were going to be facing ahead. You know, so it kind of right. like battle hardened you. It was like everything, everything. I couldn't believe it. Like if we had been home with Parker's tools, he could have taken care of all of us. You know, the something got crimped and uh, transmission went out on our vehicle and and we were trying to get to a daughter's wedding when we had That's driven true. back and forth across the united states a, a dozen 20 times in our vehicles we never had a problem and so now we've sold our house we can't do anything and now we're trying to just you know go for, well the united states from the from the west coast to the east coast is three thousand miles i don't know what that is in kilometers probably like five thousand or something it's a trip and so everything kept going first, the transmission goes out, and then bam, the tire gets broken. Over the course of about four days, every tire went flat. Every tire. <laughs> and we had just bought new tires. It was, I, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, that's what I'm saying. Oh, is this, is this, why is this happening? I can't even pray anymore. I really, I can't even like, every day I pray for safe travels and the car to work and then something goes wrong. Like I can't even pray. And I kept thinking about women, you know, who had prayed for years to have children in the Bible, you know, the women who were just, and I thought, how do they pray for years? I, I can't even do it for four days. I've kind of yeah. lost my faith. And then, you know, the answer was, you know, it's okay. And, and it's preparation, as you said, preparation for the fact that you're going to have some trials throughout this thing. And how well can you and Parker handle it together? And it turned out uh, not too well to start with, but we got better. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was like, really? This admission is going to be a bunch of little irritating things happening? And uh, kind of, but not 100 There are a lot of good things to it. So. Yeah, even the detours taking the wrong turn twice and cost you like 20 miles. And then the last one was like, well, it's 30 miles or something like that. Back, if we want to go back that way, we may as well just travel on the 
60 miles. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's pretty much going to be the same thing. That's right, <clears throat> because uh, we, had, like I said, we've driven back and forth across the U.S. quite a bit, and so we knew we we always stopped at about the same spot. And at one point, not only had the transmission gone out, we got started again, then the speedometer went out, and the mile markers. And so I was like, I was kind of watching the mile markers so I could gauge our speed. And that's when I realized when we got back on the freeway, we were going back the way we came. And this is in the, the western part of the United States. And those exits are 20 to 30 miles apart. Like once you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way and turning around could be an hour. And then the next time it happened, there was an exit where there was a hotel. And it was like another 30 miles down the road before you'd get to another hotel and so he missed that exit and i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna try not to be mad <laughs> to leave a tire and we'll just keep going those are the kinds of things that kept happening over and over again and just i thought why why is this happening things like this like i said we've made that trip more than yeah. like close to 20 times and why is it all happening on this trip and that yeah, when, when, you're, when you're in the middle of those kind of things, we were just talking about, I think, just before the interview live, when you're in the middle of those, you're like, why? Why is this happening? Why am I being punished? You don't see the big picture. So you don't you don't understand. Well, most of us don't anyway. Even when you got that message, you probably didn't associate it with the hardships that were to come. I think what's, what's most people are really good at handling the big stuff. You know, that's what I say to my kids. My kids would come in and something horrible will happen. They just totaled the car. And they'd be like, you know, mom, usually you get upset. And I'm like, well, well, little stuff. You know, I, I might get really mad at you. With the big stuff, you're kind of like, oh, step back, take a deep breath. And so on this trip, there was nothing big. It wasn't one of the ones where you step back, take a deep breath, and then handle this, right? It was all these yeah. little irritating things. <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. And I'm worried about the weather. Are we even, I mean, I have the wedding dress. Are we going to get there in time? That's right. You know, that's no, a, I forgot. Yes. And what if yeah, I'm in an accident and I have like this destroyed wedding dress with blood on it or something? You know, my poor daughter and her um, fiance was like, is she going to get here? His mom always gets here. Don't worry yeah. about it. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like that's Chinese thing, death by a thousand cuts. It's not just one big thing. It's all these little small things that just keep piling up and piling up. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was astonishing to me. Just how much kind of bad luck can someone have? Like, that's just incredible. <laughs> even new tires blowing out. Like, it's, how does that even happen? Right. Know, it was, it, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, towards the end, it was like we came out and there was another flat tire. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> Yeah. We've had plenty of them on this trip. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. But you got there anyway. You know, you got the flagstaff, and obviously it wasn't, you know, the Navajo Indian reservation that you can hope for. But, you know, you got to have a plant nursery after all, didn't you? And, you know, kind of when you were learning your Spanish, you got to have a funny story about saying, well, we'll go to the beach, a nice, lovely spot to, to learn our Spanish. <laughs> Only for Parker to go, we can't stay here. You didn't have your contacts in, so you didn't quite know, I know what was going on. I didn't realize it was a nude beach, which is probably not the best place for missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> we practiced our spin so much, my tongue actually got sore. I didn't even know that was possible. I was like trying to roll on my R's. I'm not good. I still can't roll my R's, but I was trying. Hmm. Yeah, sore tongue. 
And then we got there and they started speaking Spanish to us and we're like just dumbfounded. <laughs> we have no idea what you're saying. Because talk to us like we're two. That's all I could think to say. Just talk to us like we're two. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, an interesting thing Kena, uh, that I picked up on when you got to the training center, you know, to learn your training and get your badges. And uh, you met this old woman, this old kind of redhead woman, and uh, she was having a bit of a joke or something and saying, like, you know, I'll probably go to Mongolia. And then you kind of mentioned that's actually where she ended up. And, you know, you, you mentioned yeah. this interesting thing where you're kind of like, well, it seems to be the eldest and, you know, who are called to serve end up in the most remotest, hard locations. And I guess to most people that would kind of seem, well, that's not really fair. They're not equipped to handle that. But it wasn't about uh, physical strength or emotional strength. It was them people who had the spiritual strength, the the most faith, I guess, if you like, you know, the real desire to serve that enabled them to, you know, to, to handle those situations. And you say that we'd only just arrived, so we hadn't quite developed that, that kind of spiritual strength at the minute. Although I dare say that was to come much later. You could have probably served anywhere in the world by the end of that trip. That's but it was just a very good, good. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Because um, you know, I can remember talking to one couple who were going to Africa and not just not like like South Africa. They were going to Africa. And they had been there before. And they said, um, yeah, we just go out to the villages and sit down and people come gather around because we have this white hair. And they really honor their elders. They, yeah. they want to hear what we have to say, unlike um, probably many of the first world countries yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and that, yeah. that was interesting because, you know, that respect for elders is something that, you know, you encountered, you and Parker encountered in your journey, the respect to people in that community and probably more so in Alaska where they kind of like had that very you know respect for your elders you know the elders of the community was very much evident and it does seem to be something which is lacking to some degree in our kind of societies you know that i guess you learned a lot um from those experiences and it does go to show you that you know the wisdom of the elders is something that um, shouldn't be taken for granted and shouldn't be kind of looked upon as you know they're, they're quite weak especially when you look at those kind of elderly people who were sent to mongolia and as you mentioned africa you know, who were uh, very well treated, even if their physical health hadn't been there, they were treated very, very much in respect and awe for the wisdom that they contained. You know, some of your listeners might be thinking about this stuff, that they might be thinking, well, I'm too old. You know, like I thought when I was younger, but I'm too old now. And what one couple said to us made sense. They said, you know, I have arthritis. I have a hard time getting up and going. I'm in a lot of pain. They said, well, I can stay home and just sit around in a lot of pain, or I can go to serve a mission in a lot of pain. Either way, you know, I can do something. And so we knew a number of them who were just like, well, pain or not. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm staying home. I'm not going to be in pain. So they actually did go ahead and, and serve and had a huge, huge impact for good. Just uh, their life experiences. Yeah, you know? uh, really amazing. As one said to me, because um, I said, when a lot of people like villages, I said, you out in these villages and you just sit on the ground. I was trying to imagine that because sometimes your knees, like, how do you even get up? You know, like, it's hard when you get old, you can't figure out how to get up, you know? And they said, yeah, yeah, I was good in flight. It was the takeoffs and the landings that were hard, you know, <laughs> getting up, getting back down. Yeah. But, yeah. That's right. I remember reading that. 
Yeah. Amazing, but I can just show you that um, a lot of people, and I don't know whether it's because we're so ingrained in our comforts or whether it's maybe our societies that tell us you're too old to do anything. Um, the people, especially in, in, in work that you're kind of doing, um, realize that, you know, like, life does not end at 60, let end at 65 or 70. I still have a lot that uh, can be done. So it's, it's an interesting thing to kind of wonder, you know, is it our societies that tell us our elderly are, are kind of, no, like, you know, kind of like our past or sell by date? Or is it just, you know, that we have that in our own minds that once we reach a certain age, well, I, I can't do anything. But that's a real inspiration to people who maybe have that mindset and should be, you know, probably spread a bit more, become a bit more prevalent in our kind of first world societies. You know, that just because you reach a certain age doesn't mean to say that, you know, you can't contribute in whatever kind of way. And I say it to Parker because he's used to doing a lot. And, you know, when, and we're older now. So as he hit 80, I mean, he was building a pole barn and fixing our dock and putting up fencing. And then things started to go wrong with his body. And he really was thinking, what, what is my value? And I said, your value is what you know. And, and I said, well, you know, some friends of ours had called and said, we want to redo our whole fireplace. We're not sure how. We don't want you to do it. We want you to come and tell us how to do it. Because that is the value that you often just help people understand how to do it. And it's interesting, um, older, like middle-aged men, men in their 40s, late 30s and 40s, will come up to me, like, I don't know, then my husband, because I don't act like I think he's great, you know. <laughs> They'll come up to me and say, your husband is so great. I learned so much from him. And that man hardly ever talks. So when he does open his mouth, people do listen. And, and so here are all these men, accomplished men, you know, they run businesses and stuff, coming up to tell me, you know, how wise my husband is. Kind of like, you should you should treat him with more respect, which I don't. <laughs> I mean, I tried. I mean, I'm not saying I'm disrespectful, but I have been known to get my own Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. I guess, um, you know, you arrived there on your first... <clears throat> um, sign or first uh, realization that this was going to be uh, a, a task and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's I guess it's a, a testament to the dedication and the discipline and the faith um, I guess that you and Parker had that when you left that community it was completely transformed from the state and the mindset that you entered it because when you and Parker arrived in you were immediately kind of greeted by a very kind of unfriendly church congregation. Certainly the, the Spanish-speaking people. Even the Spanish church um, leader uh, was disappointed because he says, can you not speak Spanish? We don't need more people who can speak English. We really need more people who uh, can speak Spanish. So, I mean, that must have been a, a massive kind of setback. And I know that you, you kind of had a hard time of it, but one thing that kind of gave you a bit of faith was reading back a letter that you had wrote to yourself and um, to a senior kind of missionary couple and taking a lot of comfort and faith, even from your own words. It's true. When when we first went there, our thought was, well, well, we can't do any good. I mean, if we can't speak the language. 
And so we were actually serving with two congregations. One was Spanish speaking, one was English speaking. And the English speaking was the most unfriendly congregation. People wouldn't even talk to each other. It was, let me say, it was a very quiet church, very loud. <laughs> and I, I really had gotten um, discouraged. And I don't usually get discouraged. You know, when people say, oh, you can't do that. My reaction is usually, well, just watch me. But at this point, I was thinking, I, maybe he did make a mistake, God. Maybe we really shouldn't be here. And, and then I did remember this letter I had written to someone who I knew they were thinking, we're not doing any good. But our small congregation that they had come to serve with had been going through a lot of trials. And people were really struggling. And just to have them there, just to have them upbeat and showing up to help whenever help was needed, because that's all they were there for, right? Was just, they weren't working, they were just there and available to help. Really gave us the strength we needed to get through those times as a congregation. And as I read that, I realized that we were probably doing the same thing and didn't, didn't really realize it. And so then we really buckled down. Um, you know, did our best. And we never got very good at Spanish. But the thing about people, you know, Hispanics who move into the US and probably the same thing happens in, in the UK is they learn enough English to get along. And we learned enough Spanish to get along. And after a while, we could understand their Spanish. I just couldn't get through it in my head fast enough to turn my English into Spanish. So, but they could understand my English. So that's how we talk to each other. They spoke in Spanish, we spoke in English and it worked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. We yeah. did try. It's not like we gave up. But once actually told me in Spanish how bad Spanish was. <laughs> He's like, oh, su español es muy mal. I was like, okay, I get it. But in fact, once between missions, we went down to um, Guatemala and I went over to ask someone a question in Spanish. And she just looked at me and said, I don't speak English. And I thought, oh, well, that was supposed to be Spanish. <laughs> but the really bad. Spanish accent. <laughs> it's yeah, really like it. yeah. yeah. I guess it's amazing, you know, um, <laughs> when when you, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that um, sometimes, you know, help doesn't have to come from external sources. Sometimes the best advice is the advice that you dish out to other people. Sometimes you go, yeah, you know, I'm kind of dishing out this advice to someone else, but yet I should learn to take my own advice. Yes. Right. Like just you're here for a purpose and you, you and you probably don't see it. Like I said, we saw in that missionary couple that they looked discouraged to us and they had no idea what a huge positive impact they were having on us. And I think that same thing happened on our missions. In fact, I, I write that story about walking through town once we wear these name badges, right? There were these black name badges. And just, I was thinking, we're going for another medical appointment for Parker. Like, what does this have to do with missionary work? That's kind of my attitude all the time. And, you know, what does this have to do with missionary work? And then um, I saw this guy sitting, he looked like he was in his 20s, just sitting on his bench, on a bus bench, watching us, just really focused on us. And I felt the spirit say to me, you have no good how much you, no idea how much good you do just when you're walking around. And I had a sense of that young man had pulled back from his church. And when he saw us, he was rethinking. He was rethinking, you know, where's my life? Where did I want it to be right now? And that's kind of what the spirit was sharing with me. 
like uh, you're gonna do good even at the medical appointment <laughs> I, I guess it's it's thing because i know that was kind of one of my things because um we we mentioned at the start of this and you've just touched on it there that you and parker had expected to go in and just talk about the bible and preach the gospel and most of your uh, missionary work involve going to people's houses who may or who may not have been friendly you know you kind of joke in it like oh close the door don't let them in you know that type of right. thing when you're, you're coming up the door you're expecting that and um, asking children if they wanted to be baptized and not knowing how that would kind of go down with their parents one-to-one um, -one meetings with the church president so a lot of this stuff that seemed to be as you mentioned there what's this got to do with missionary work what's this got to do with missionary work and what you actually began to realize is that <clears throat> what you were there to do was strengthen the church you know by uh, bringing people back to the church in whatever kind of ways that <clears throat> may have helped them and it wasn't necessarily through preaching the gospel but it may have just been giving them aid or helping them with their day-to-day -day lives to let them know that you know there was a lot of good within the church still for whatever reason they lacked um, and obviously supporting young elders um, as we mentioned there are activating members who slipped away but it's it wasn't necessarily preaching gospel it was helping people what you thought was completely unrelated to missionary work but when you found kind of uh, I think you mentioned you were okay now I get a sense of a foundation here of what it is that we're help, helping to do by helping people in their own lives we're helping to bring them back into the church it's true we did see that and you know you mentioned the young children you know that the the husband and the wife belonged to two different churches and they couldn't decide on one so what they decided was none and so that and their children wanted to learn about god and they asked us to come teach them but part of what we teach is that in, in the christian religion baptism is a part of that right and so then we asked mm -hmm. do who this is how we always do it. we don't say you have to get baptized what we say is this is what the bible says and will you and you decide you find out from god what you should do yeah. and we the parents had said that whatever the children decided they could do but as soon as they decided they wanted to be baptized into one particular church the father's church um then all of a sudden they didn't want us to come anymore like they said it but they didn't mean it and then they said the children weren't old enough to decide and the children were older they were you know 12. um so it, those were the kinds of situations we ran into and and what they really wanted us to do is just come teach the children the bible they, yeah. they wanted them to learn about god and and so that's what we just started doing because the mother called and said are you not, aren't you going to come again the, the daughter called and said aren't you going to come again and i said well, i didn't think your mother wanted us to and i could hear her mother in the background saying yeah you can come but we couldn't talk about that today. <laughs> you know? we just talked about that which was fine that worked for us it was like we were their church and that's what i didn't want to be i didn't want to be someone's church i want to yeah. like i don't want to be the person they look to what i want to be is like those arrows pointing to god like they look at me and what they see is me saying, go to God, go to God. Yeah. Yes, we did think that we would get to sit down and talk about God and in a particular order, talk about baptism. And what actually we ended up doing was a lot of service work, as you said. We spent a lot of time with people. We eventually ended up going to 
um, <clears throat> the jail or the prison to teach because we were working with inner city. And a lot of people in the inner city, they're very good people and they have some relatives who are not. And just about everyone we were teaching would say, could you go visit our relative who happens to be in jail or prison right now? And we showed up there so often one of the prison people came up to us and said, would you like to teach a class? <laughs> we said, yeah, that'd be nice because then we could see them all at once, you know? Um, so yeah, we started teaching uh, the men in prison. That was interesting, yeah. Hmm. It's just amazing how, I know that they say God works in mysterious ways, but um, it never fails to cease me. And I'm sure it never fails to cease you, the ways in which, you know, high service works where people rediscover their faith and rediscover you know the light god the creator again through even the most kind of seemingly mundane tasks where as you're complaining like how on earth is this going to lead anywhere and it just through these series of events that it just turns out to be this incredible kind of path and journey which you could never have predicted you know, as we just mentioned, there just from sitting with people and not even having, not even be allowed to even talk about baptism, but just kind of sitting there, people who you think were very unfriendly, uh, people who you were, you know, uh, just showing up, or maybe people who weren't even taking your phone calls, and just out of the blue or somehow through a series of events or coincidences, you know, they, they either come looking you or they you find out that God, we were doing some good after all, and now. You know they're very enthusiastic to to return to the church and return to God. It's it really is amazing. It never ceases to feel me. It's true. I and never, I think we're just part. Never, yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think Paul says something like like uh, one plants the seed and one nourishes it and one harvests it. You know we're just part of a a chain, a chain of people who were showing up when we were needed. And you know Sister um, Mary, she's the one Maria, the one I talk about a lot, who is in her 80s. I mean, she's still alive. I can look her up and find her phone number. Like, how can you still be alive? But, um, and both her wrists were broken. And so we're like, yeah. uh, uh oh, I, we're gonna have to help her at least get to the grocery store. I mean, she couldn't drive. And so we started, I, I swear we spent three or four days a week doing things with um, Sister yeah. Mary for her. Um, yeah. And what we yeah. learned from this, and I think this is an important thing, we were visiting a lot of older people <laughs> whose health, like hers, was not good. And as a result, they weren't coming to church. And one lady, Sister Ruth, she just couldn't hear. She's like, what's the point? I go, I cannot understand what they're saying. And I'm just sitting there. And people, you know, people move in and out of areas like you're thinking about moving right now right so they move in and out of areas and these the younger people some of them didn't even know these people or didn't know why they weren't coming they just thought oh well they stopped coming and maybe they're not interested in church anymore and what we were finding is a lot of the elderly really want to be involved in some way in church but don't have the financial means the physical health to to be there and, and so when we would bring Sister Mary to church, people were like, oh my gosh, is she still alive? Like, I remember when she was my Sunday school teacher, like, you know that, like they loved her, but they had just kind of forgotten about her. And I, so I, people should look around their local congregation if they're involved in a church and say, who are the elderly who are not coming out? I'm not gonna like plug another book right now, 
was what did she call it? Um, her last name is Buchanan, but it's um, something about serving in a worn out body. You know, how can I serve in my worn out body? <laughs> and it and people in nursing homes and stuff get a lot out of that book. There's a sense of I still am here. I still have some kind of value. And it would be good to, as leaders of churches, to yeah. look around. It was a meeting. Yeah, we got to um, we got to know a lot of the people <clears throat> in the book. You know, it was almost like the reader is there with these people. You know, um, Sister Beatrice and her death quilt. Um, you had to attend a welcome home party for a grandson. At the same time, her brother was getting buried, and you find out that then he was related to her sister Karna. <clears throat> she mentioned breaking her arms. Um, and you wrote this very long piece about Sister Carter, who was so, so. Um, and we, yeah, she, she. I mean, ever so like, she would say things. She was like, she was one of those people. Like, you had to allow an extra fifteen minutes because, as you said goodbye and walked out the door, she'd be like, "Oh, by the way," and it would be like, "Oh, by the way, um, I can't use my oven anymore. Why can't you? Well, because every time I turn it on, flame shoot out. Well, you know what? We should look at that." That's kind of the thing we would be doing. Like, I can't, I don't want to take a bath because it's so cold in my bath. And why is it cold in your bath? And why was a hole in the floor? Oh, well, we probably want to take care of that too. Those are the kinds of things she'd say to us. And um, at one point, her, she, I mean, she was in her 80s. She couldn't keep up her backyard. So we actually got a church project where all the men came yeah. over and they helped us to take all the weeds and stuff down in her backyard. We happened to have a truck at, by this point. The El Camino was gone. And we had actually gotten a decent new truck and we piled all those weeds on it. And then we drove over to sister Beatrice's house and sister Beatrice had goats. And as we pulled up with all these weeds and stuff, she said, she started crying. She said, I have, but to think it, I have, but to think it. And God provides that she had just been thinking that morning, what am I going to feed the goats? And here we came with this huge, you know, truckload of weeds and things. Sister Carla was the opposite. She didn't, you know, she was just this paranoid, kind of schizophrenic, um, crazy lady, actually. <laughs> and so we said, what would you like to, to have in your backyard now? And she said, oh, tomatoes. So we planted tomatoes and she could see them from her back porch step. And she watched them all growing and they're green. And finally, they're ripe. And we're like, do you want to go out and pick these tomatoes that, that she'd been watching us care for? I said, no, I don't really like tomatoes. It was that's the kind of person she was. <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, we're sure glad we did that for you. Now we'll go share them with somebody else. But yeah, she was just funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh Even God. having to take her to the doctors, and she was so slow. You had to slow down to keep up with her and trying to get her medication. She wasn't keeping up with her. It was so, so much. It was exhausting the amount of effort and time that you put into this lady and at one point both of you are questioning should we be spending so much time with one person when that time could be devoted to a number of other people in need it's true. and and when we prayed this was the answer we got um i love her she is one of my beloved when she was younger and had her health she served me faithfully and well. And now I want you to take care of her as well as you can spend as much time with her as she needs. And I, to me, that just speaks to how much God loves us. And 
and I know people who think, well, I'm not doing enough. I, you know, I, I visit my neighbor. I do it. It's enough. It's enough. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it's, it's, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Sometimes we're looking for like a grand act or a, uh, <coughs> you know, please swarm around me to my congregation. Most of the time, it's the smallest, simplest acts, those smallest, simplest acts of kindness that make the most. So we're looking to make a big splash in the world. And it's, it's not always like that. It's not, generally, it's not like that. It's normally the small, tiny things that you do for people that count the most. Um, like Brother you know, Raphael. Yeah. And, and there was that lady in Alaska who the, I felt like I kept saying, call her. And it was so, yeah. it's embarrassing. I've been in sales. And, you know, if you call someone a couple of times and they don't call you back, they're not interested. They're not going to call you and say no. And so I... I don't want to be the, that person that someone else on the other end of the line is like, oh, great, this won't bother me again, right? And that's what it felt like with this woman. We had visited her. She let us visit her one time. And, you know, it was a small house. She had a couple of children who were disabled. And she actually had, it was in long ago enough that it was a, she had um, an answering machine next to her. And every time the phone would ring, she would just let the message go to the answering machine. She was sitting right there, but she didn't pick up. And so I knew, and she never let us visit again. And at least once a week for about six or eight weeks, I felt like I needed to call her. And I'd say, clearly she's not interested. Like she doesn't want us to visit. She has no interest in hearing from us. It's embarrassing for me to call her. I thought, oh, God wants to humiliate me. So I would be, call her anyway. So I would call her and pretty much I'd say the same thing. We'd love to visit. Um, or if not, if you ever need anything, call us and here's our number. And I, you know, so that went on for literally a couple of months. And one day she called me and I thought, oh, and she said, I'm in the hospital. I went in for what was supposed to be an in and out surgery, a day surgery. And I thought I would be home and my kids are coming home from school, but something went wrong and I can't get home. And her husband up in Alaska is called working on the slope. He worked on the slope. So he would have had to fly back. But right there, there was a volcano going off or something. They couldn't fly. So she said, he can't get home. I just need someone to go over and make sure my kids are okay. And when that happened, that's when I realized what God had really been doing. He, I don't think if I had just called once and left one message like two months before, that she would have known who to call. It was that call week after week, eight calls. And it, probably she had saved one of them on her um, you know, answering machine, but she used to be able to call your answering machine and get the messages. And uh, that's how she got my number to call me. So when she needed the help, well, she knew who to call because I kept saying the same thing. <laughs> if you need help, call us, here's our number. So yeah, it was just one of those things where God really set it up and I could see it after the fact. And, and I really did not want to call her. Every time I would have an argument, like, clearly, no. <laughs> but I'm um, so glad it worked out. It did work out. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that was a really powerful moving story. But also, there was other characters, I guess you meant, like, um, once again, you know, Brother Raphael, who needed help from moving his wheelchair. And while you happened to be there, you smelled gas from the house. If you and Parker had not been there, it probably would have been ended up dead the next day. 
Right. It's interesting because this is one uh, part of us, Parker and I, learning to work together. Let me just say, my learning to work with Parker. <laughs> so we had both prayed about what we should do. Now, remember, we had had a prayer about the mission. And we got the same answer on the same day, right? Sell the house. So we would get up and we would look over our list of people in the congregation, pray, who should we go see? And I came up with three names. Well, he came up with a couple of different names and I thought he was wrong. That's really how I looked at it. Oh, he's wrong. And, um, but, you know, so we went to see all five and I thought really the reason he wanted to know, go to, so his brother Raphael was actually married to sister Beatrice with the goats, right? So we go there and I thought he just wants to see those goats. But we go there and um, that's when brother Raphael is like, keeps talking about, he needs to fix his wheelchair. Something has to be done. He's worried about a fire. And what if there's a fire? How can he safely get out? Because his wheelchair would tip over backwards and we were supposed to put something on it. And then we could smell gas. Well, they were old enough. They could not smell it. And we went in and realized that um, one of their burners at a gas stove was on just a little bit. And if they had gone in and tried to start that, that there would be all this gas. I think there might have been an explosion. And so, you know, we got the windows open and got it cleared out. But what I got from that is God was going to give me part of the answer and he was going to give Parker part of the answer. We were not, we were going to have to work together because we would both have only part of the answer. In the book I'm working on, I have a good story that goes with this. I don't know if I'm going to share it with you now, like for upcoming events. Um, we, my husband and I think very differently and he has more of an engineer's brain, how I use this and an artist's brain. And I am very logical. I'm Mr. Spock and I have a degree in math for a reason because I'm good at it. And, and I tend to set aside emotion. And so one day I was taking um, well, those online intelligence tests, right? And I scored pretty high. And, but there were five parts to it and I scored high in three parts. And the other two, not so well. Things like patterns. My husband's very good with patterns. So I said, hey, Parker, you should come take this test too. And he did. And we scored almost the same. But he scored really high in, a, in a other, the two others. Plus, there was one where we had some overlap. I said, you know what would be cool? We should take this test together. And if we disagree on an answer, if it's one of the things I'm good at, we'll go with my answer. And if it's one of the things you're good at, we'll go with your answer. And I'm telling you, we were off the charts genius when we took that test together. We were so high. And what I got from that is the way, the reason we work so well together is because we think so differently. I, I stopped thinking, I don't want to listen to what he says because I don't think like that, right? I, I began where I would seek him out. Well, what do you think? Because he thinks differently than I do and he's going to see it differently than I do. And instead of seeing it as, kind of irritating that he would come up with all these reasons why it might be an issue or what else I should look at. It, it became something I, I wanted. And, and part of that learning then was continued on this mission where we would pray, who should we visit today? And often get different answers. And then we would just visit them all. And it was, amazing how often that worked because once on the, not like, we're on missions for like years right so this happens one time where we were praying who should we go see and we pull up to this house and we hadn't called we just were going to show up and there was a car backing out of the driveway so we thought okay i guess we can't visit but the husband rolls down his window 
And he said, oh, are you here to see my wife? And we were like, yeah. And he said, she's waiting for you. And I thought, well, how can she be waiting for us? Like, waiting to call. And as we went to the door, um, she said, I can't believe you're here already. She said, I just got off the phone with church headquarters, complaining about something. And we were like, well, that's not why we're here. We didn't know you made that call. But we were able to help her with her issue. And she's like, they didn't call you? I was like, no, we were just praying. And God told us to come see you today. <laughs> so I guess God knew that you had a problem. And he sent us. And so those were the kinds of experiences that we had where we just managed to show up where people needed us by just saying, who do you want us to visit today? And right now, I'm actually looking forward to doing that again. I do do it. It's part of what I wrote about in the first book, you know, giving my to-do list to God. I'd say, what do you want me to do today? And often it's to call someone or to visit them. And we both have some big projects we're finishing up. And I said, you know, as soon as these projects are done, what I'd really like us to do is as a couple, act like when we were on mission, or we'll just say, who do you want us to take care of today? It would be, I'm looking forward to that. I don't actually have to be on a mission to do it. We, we're retired. We can just do it. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful way of being, a beautiful way of serving, of just saying, look, who or what do you need me to, to, to serve? And sometimes the answer comes unexpectedly. Sometimes you can kind of go, this person? Surely it couldn't be this person. Um, and it generally is that person, even if you think, well, there's absolutely nothing that I could do to help this person. There's nothing that I have in common with that person. But once you kind of get to know them a little bit, then I, I feel for me anyway that you do get a sense or their outer appearance or outer exterior does soften and you get a little more into their heart. And then you get kind of that answer, oh, right, okay, this is why. And again, it doesn't have to be anything major. It could be a kind of word. It can be a favor. I guess the ways in which you can be called to serve are as uh, common, I guess, as grains of sand on the beach, something like that. You yes. know, it's, it's just mm -hmm. amazing. Sister Grace there, 94, very, very ill. She was ready to die, but she wanted to dictate her life story, I think I remember. And you helped her with that. And then obviously, Jose Romero, you spent a long time looking for him. Oh, Jose Romero. Yeah. So, what was, well, let's go back to Sister Grace first, because she did want to die. And she kept asking, you know, Parker to bless her. And he would tell her that she still had work to do. And she was in a nursing home in the hospital part in bed on painkillers. She was hardly ever awake. And I thought, what in the world could she have left to do? But then she was given a blessing and told that, that she wanted to write her family history for her children. And so she did that. It took a couple of weeks. And when she was finished and approved it, she died two days later. She was like, she was ready to go. And she knew she was going home, that she'd finished all the work that she needed to here on earth. Now, Jose Romero, he was much younger. And the mission, the, the younger missionary said, you got to read this guy. He's crazy. I said, you want, me, you want us to meet a crazy guy? And they said, oh, yeah, he's just fun. You know, like he does all this stuff. He does woodworking and stuff. And we kept going to his house and he was never there. He'd bang on the door. He wouldn't be there. And at the same time, we were teaching another couple, um, well, marriage counseling classes. That's what they yeah. seemed to need. So that's what we were working with them with. 
And I can remember, I can't even tell you, like five, six, seven times we would go to Jose Romero. And then finally, we we were into some of the younger missionaries and they said they had seen him. And we said, really, how did it go? And they said, well, his whole family has fallen apart. His wife took the kids and left him and went back to Mexico. He's here by himself. He can't get him to come back. And, and we thought, my gosh, he really like needs stuff. Like we have these marriage counseling courses we teach, right? Like something like that for him. But nope. And so we we just could never find him. And then one day we were teaching the family, this other family, and they had, oh my gosh, these um, marriage counseling courses. And his wife was upset because turns out what he did was he would go into these drunken rages. And I thought, hmm, way over our pay grade. I don't have to deal with that. But he had stopped drinking as we went through these courses. And... And she had told us that his one brother was a particular problem because he drank and whenever he came over, her husband drank. So we're sitting there and we see this guy walk past the window and she's like, oh, it's his brother. And I was like, is this the brother who makes him drink? And she said, no, this is a good brother. And he knocked on the door and he came in and he's just introducing himself. And, and he said, oh, I'm a member of the church. We said, you, you are. Really? So what's your name? And he said, oh, Jose Romero. Like, oh, so we finally got to meet Jose Romero. He actually showed up at that house. And now we started working with Jose. And he's like, you know, making promises to God. He did. If, if, because he wasn't going to church. He said, if you will bring my family back to me, we will go to church. And in Mexico, they were going to church. His wife and their children were going to church. And he promised God that when they came back, if they, he would send them back, they would go to church. And they did come back. And he did not go to church. And so sometimes people would say to us, I'm going to go to church. And they would never show up. And, you know, why do we want them there? Because they feel that spirit. Because they will hear some words that will make a change in their life. Because they see people who are committing to living a better way. And it helps them commit to living a better way. The same way you might take a yoga class or an art class. It's not like you can't do it on your own. But it's good if you can get there. And so I, I would think, why, why? Do people say they'll come and then they don't? And I thought, well, Jose Romero even told God he would go to church and then didn't. So, yeah, but he was a good guy. We enjoyed him. He was a little different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Around about this time, which is which is uh, a, a very uh, important and traumatic period of time, is that you got the news that daughters, uh, daughters, Parker's daughter Bonnie and son-in-law KJ, isn't it KJ or is it AJ? KJ, KJ, KJ. They were involved in a car accident. Now Bonnie was pretty much fine, but um, KJ was thrown from the car, <clears throat> suffered a fractured skull. They had to uh, remove a piece of skull to um, keep the swelling down in the brain, and they didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. And pretty much around that same period of time, um, Parker's mother also passed as well. And I guess most people's reaction would be to drop what they're doing and to raise up to be by the bedside of, you know, both the daughter, son-in-law and the mother. But instead, you felt that you were best staying where you were and just prayed and fasted. And a lot of people may consider that to be selfish or unfeeling. And I'd love to know 
what your thoughts around this was. I know you go and did in the book, you kind of deliberated it and you put a little back from the church and had to think about it, but ultimately you felt that you were best placed and best um, positioned to serve there. It's interesting because Parker Parker is a guy and if he can't think of something to do, he doesn't know why he needs to be there. The thought that just being there would be enough. And it really, I left that decision up to him. Do you want to leave? And he said, I don't know what I would do if I was there. And so we did call the local church and she had siblings nearby. And they all reached out for helping, you know, babysit kids and provide meals and and take care of them. Um, and we stayed where we were. And and someone else near us was in a car accident, a terrible car accident, where Parker was able to go and give them blessings, and we were able to provide some meals and things. And so, um, you know, here's what I've, I've learned from this that if someone is praying about something and they get an answer, it isn't my job to judge their answer. Sometimes it looks crazy. And I think, why would you do this? And I know people look at us sometimes and think, why are you doing that? And and Paul actually says that in the Bible. He said, you know, when I follow the spirit, sometimes it looks like foolishness to people. Like I'm doing something foolish. When he went to Rome, Someone said to him, if you go to Rome, you're going to be killed. And he said, well, whether or not, I know what I'm supposed to do is go to Rome and I'm going. And that's how we felt. That was our answer. And we did what was our answer. It might have been a different answer for someone else. Um, But I had a friend who felt like she should move to um, back to the West. And there wasn't a lot of jobs there. She and her husband were in West Virginia. And I was like, there's no jobs there. Like, I don't know what you think you're going to find. And, but they went and what actually happened is they found her mother who was uh, schizophrenic and was falling apart and they brought, they came back and brought her mother with her. Like, really, this is how bad it was where they were, where the jobs were. You do not think of Appalachia, Appalachia in the U.S. as being the high job place. It's not. And they left Appalachia to go someplace worse (laughs) and then came back. Um, But the whole point of their going was, I think, to end up with her mother and give her the help she needed. They didn't realize that at the time. And people who were telling her not to go, and she kept saying, but I keep praying, God keeps telling me to go, were thinking she's foolish. And so I do try to pay attention to the spirit and try not to judge other people who get answers that are different than mine, unless it's Parker, then I like to judge him. But then it, it turns out that that was what we were supposed to do. And KJ did recover. Yeah, yeah. We were just kind of talking about this before the interview kind of went live about uh, whether, because I had just got um, pretty bad news before the interview went live, but pretty much in the same way that you explained about partners, I felt, well, what good would it do me not holding the interview it's not like i can do anything so probably the best thing that i can do is let the you know the the interview go ahead and i I kind of said to you well you're the best kind of person um who can help in this situation because of your background because of the 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 congregation that you can you know that you are in touch with that could you know offer their prayers and assistance so sometimes it's, it's not uh a selfish way but kind of looking at the bigger picture 
we are where we're kind of meant to be and we're in that best place to deserve and provide help. Um, now, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the zip code maps and stuff that you did, but I'll kind of leave that after because it was a part that you had mentioned that I thought was really interesting. You'd kind of touched on this just before we were talking about this. There was a, um, a lady or young lady called Krista who you mentioned wanted to be spiritually fed. She wanted to you know, know about the Bible, the scripture and stuff like that. But her mother had had enough of the church. She had a lot of bad experiences. She called the people in the church hypocrites that didn't believe. Um, and you had a kind of interesting perspective on that by saying, well, you know, by that reckoning, no one then should try anything. You know, coaches and teachers should never try to help their pupils or help their uh, charges, you know, under them because they know that they're not going to get it right first time. They know that they're going to fail. But it, you mentioned that it's not about the succeeding. We're not meant to, you know, believe 100% or we're not meant to come into this 100% with our faith. It's about the trying. It's about, okay, I'll try it once. I'll try it twice. I'll try it three times. It's also about meeting other people, people with a shared vision, people with shared goals. And I find that very interesting. I did feel that way. I... Felt like well then I guess that makes me a yoga hypocrite because I say I should be able to do a headstand I still can't do a headstand I've been doing yoga for years and you know or football hypocrite because I should have been able to make that field goal but I didn't make that field goal and and but people judge um, people who go to church on a much higher level well you should be able to forgive well I don't I mean I'm trying right or you should never judge people well I'm trying at least I'm trying right. And so, but I don't always make it all the time. So if I, if you're not going to call me a hypocrite when I don't, you know, football hypocrite when I don't make the field goal or yoga hypocrite, then please don't call me a hypocrite at church because I'm trying. And that was the point I was making. And people believe in organized school. They believe in organized sports. They believe in organized art classes, but they don't believe in any organized training today. Mm. Like, and I, or spiritual training, no organized spiritual training, but that's what religion is. So it's an organized spiritual training. And yeah, sometimes you get a bad coach or a bad pastor, but you know, it, it gives me, for me, gives me a place to go every week where I meet people who are committed to learning how to do this. And where I'm reminded, this is what it takes to be a spiritual person. You need to spend time with God every day. Um, part of what will come out of it is this more love and less judgment. Am I perfect at it? No, not even close, but I'm trying. And that weekly meeting reminds me and puts me, and you know, the other thing it gives me, I meet people who need help. I know a lot of people are like, well, I don't know who needs help. You know, I'm just sitting at home going to work. I don't know. And God does, you could ask him, but also at church, we hear a lot because they, people call the church. And so I find a lot of people to help. And they don't even come to church. They're not even members, but they call the churches. Now, people know to call the churches. As much as other people complain about the churches, when people need help, they call the churches. Can you help? Can you help me with my bill? Can you help me, right? Can you help me with rides to the doctors? Can you help me with meals? They call the churches. That's who they call. They do not call the local football team. They do not call the yoga class. <laughs> they call the churches because we're the people who show up. We're looking for people to help. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's like so true. And it's, 
it, it was also, um, I have to say, it was also a kind of uh, lesson for me, you know, because uh, we do get into the habit of criticizing the church <clears throat> for not being perfect, for people kind of being there and professing their faith and not uh, truly believing. But it's it's so, so utterly true. We only have to step back and look at our own lives and realize where we're not perfect, where we are not fully committed to something that we believe in, where we give advice out to people, but yet we don't follow our own advice. So it was also a kind of uh, a good lesson and a good um, something to contemplate for myself to realize that, yeah, yeah like you know, there may be people in all walks of life, not just the church. Um, the church is far from perfect, but it's it's certainly in the public crosshair. But you're absolutely right. The benefits and the help that it gives to people through uh, debt, you know, relief through, um, you know, uh, transport to a location through bereavement council, things like that there. Um, it, it's something that people turn to. You're right, they don't turn to anything else. It's straight to the church when when, when they need that help. So it, it's it's a remembrance for me. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because I do feel it's an important point to me. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do love church. Not everybody does. I get that, but I do. <laughs> so, and that's why, it, as I said, thank you for putting it yeah. in some good words. Yeah. No, no, absolutely fine. Um, there's a, there's another part about forgiveness or atonement, but that is also talked about when you get to Alaska. So I'll kind of bring that up again there. Um, the other point that you kind of realize that although that you have this faith, um, and it's, I've talked about this many times too, our faith, just as we were talking about, is not perfect. We are, are what we think is uh, our uh, way of serving is generally not the way in which we're led to serve. And a lot of the time, we don't get feedback. We don't get um it, it seems like we're, our time is wasted. It seems like, you know, what we're doing, no one's listening, as you mentioned. No one's bothering. It was like Jonah and the whale, as you mentioned. Um, and then it just kind of takes one person, in this case, the mission president, to say, look, stop trying to be in a certain way. Just be yourself. You know, just stop trying to serve in a certain way, thinking that this is what's needed. All you need to do is simply be yourself. And that just means opening up your heart and shining and being this person that you are. And once you decided to do that, you saw, began to see the sea change in the parishioners and the people that you interacted with, simply by being yourself, by allowing yourself to being yourself and not being what you thought that the people needed. It's true. I did feel like, oh my gosh, I'm doing, I, I just can't figure out what to do. And then I had that thought where I was, where, where I felt like God said, Stop trying to do it right. Just do yeah. it well. Just relax and love and whatever. It, it'll be okay. Whatever you decide to do is going to be okay. And that that can be hard for me. It's hard for a logical person <laughs> who's like thinks emotions are like something you should avoid to really do that. And so that was probably one of the uh, things that came about for me through this mission was my ability to more open my heart. And just, you know, um, be there for people. 
I remember I was at this um, this couple who had waited years. Finally, had some had had a they had two children, twins, and the, the first one the one twin died, and the other twin was still in the hospital because they'd come early. And we had a graveside service, and only the husband could go. And I can remember going to that service in that tiny tiny little coffin and thinking um, I wanted to just kneel and to sort of honor him, but we were all standing there. And so I didn't. And I, I felt the spirit say to me, you know, bridle your passions, but not these good feelings, these, yeah. this love. Like don't bridle that. We learned a lot. We learned a lot on that, on these missions, yeah. And it changed it changed our heart. Well, Parker has a good heart. Yeah, I mean, people who meet Parker just immediately respond. He's the kind that dogs and little kids are just hanging on. I remember we went to see a lady the other day, and he went in first. I was doing something in the car, and she just said, "Oh, she just calls him Big Heart." She just took one look at him and was like, "Oh, Big Heart." People could just feel it. I'm not that. I walk in and they're like, "Hmm, don't play poker with that woman," like that, right? <laughs> um, but but it comes across more and more you know he's starting to rub off on me the other um great um talking point that i wanted to bring up as well which was really interesting you were talking about um learning this idea of being whole being what does whole faith mean what does it mean to be a whole person um and you generally find that it is those people who have extreme trials in their life that represent this idea of wholeness that despite what's going on in their life like those people as you mentioned they just exude this serenity they con constantly smile they never kind of fall into this doom and gloom and whatever's going on in their life they they're able to handle it they are able to still maintain their faith they're still able to be the person that they are without falling into anger or resentment or sorrow um, and it was a really great um, thing to talk about and thing to 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 actually learn or sorry read um, and you can imagine that it's not that we're meant to not have challenges and we're not meant to have traumas or afflictions but it is that the knowing that despite these challenges that we're going to be supported through them that's the difference I think it is. It is that that focus. It's not our circumstances. It's our focus, and so I, that's what I saw from like that that couple. I refer to them as a serene couple. But, you know, when when we say they're smiling, and they were, and they were calm. They, but they weren't that sort of giddy, happy, like over the top. It was just a sort of sense of calm happiness that they exuded. And I did put that together with whole. And the reason I was studying whole is um, it was a promise that was given to me when I first married Parker. And and it felt like, I mean, God told me to marry him. And, and I was thinking, hmm, I just don't think marriage would be good right now. But the promise that was given was all would be made whole as a result of this marriage. And my children were struggling with things. Um, why am I bringing this up? 
And so I began to research what the word whole meant in the Bible. And Christ used that word, not with the nine lepers where that were healed, but with the one that came back and thanked him. And the Greek underlying that word refers to emotional and spiritual healing, not just physical healing. And so that's what I was looking at. Who did I think were whole people? And these were whole. Um, Sister Grace, who felt like, you know, was struggling through all that time and wanted to die and then finally wrote her story so she could die. I saw her as whole. And that's what I was looking for. Who are these people I think of as whole and why are they? And that's what I'm aiming for in my life. And it cannot be easy. It can be hard, Jenna. Um, mostly I deal with most problems pretty well now. And mostly before I leave the house, like my whole New Year's resolution last year was to love people as Christ and God do. And as, when I would leave the house, I would think about that. In, whether I'm in the grocery store or wherever I am to just love the people. But um, Parker was going through a bad time and we thought he might die this year. It was really bad. It was like I was married to Benjamin Button. He was getting worse and worse. It was like, oh my gosh, now I have to get him dressed and we have to help him with his toileting and he is not looking good. And uh, let's just say I did not handle it well to start with. <laughs> I was really, um, you know, and God would try to put that peace, you know, that peace he gives you, it's all going to be fine. And I thought, you know, I don't want your peace. I want Parker. Like you just back off. I, I'd rather have Parker than your peace, okay? But don't back off too far. <laughs> and it took me a long time to finally just, he would say, Margaret, he's not yours. He's mine. And you're together, but you're in different paths. And whatever I have in store for him, I have something in store for you. It's not easy to accept that, Zenith. It's not easy, as you said, to say, here's where I think I'm headed and God has me going somewhere else. And so that's probably been the hardest thing I've had to face recently because we're at that age. One of us is going to die first. We know it. Unless, you know, unless I'm driving and kill us in a car accident. But Parker always thinks I'm going to kill us in a car accident when I'm driving. But um, yeah, we're, we're going to have to confront that. And I hope I'm at that point able to confront it the way the people I saw her whole did. Like this is just something I'm gonna um, accept. Yeah, it's a very poignant um, way of looking at things. It comes to us all, and how do we prepare for that? And I suppose it's easy saying, you know, well, if you really are a person of faith, then you should have no fear over it, but we're still very much human while we're here. I'm still prone to human emotions. And when we are used to waking up to someone every day and being so much a part of that person's life, when that person is no longer there, then it, 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 I would imagine um, it, it has this gulf, I guess, in your life. But I guess if we can just try to, to have that understanding, as you rightly say there so poignantly, is that Although you're together with someone, your paths are your paths, and you know God um, may have something different in store from you know your idea of a, a kind of happy ending. That it maybe makes the the passing a little easier. But um, you actually left that church as we were talking about in the beginning, the trials and tribulations from going from a very unfriendly community, an unfriendly parish, through once again these 
acts of service that didn't seem to be anything to do with um, preaching the gospel, but you um, started visiting people in their own homes, gathering as much information about them as you could, um, attending the women's enrichment meeting with no one even talking to each other. Um, and then eventually through the information that you'd gathered on people and uh, just talking to one person or other, you were able to say, well, oh, such and such lives down there. They need some company or such and such. This was also helped by you got the zip codes from, for all people. So you were able to see who lived in the, the, the immediate vicinity of people and then who can they minding your grandkids. This other lady... Um, is, is bored sitting in all day, you know, she could be company with you. And it made such a community. People began to see that, you know, they had a lot in common with people, other people who they were complete strangers to, but also then they lived such in close vicinity where they didn't even know that. And that was probably one of the biggest things that you, know, you took away from, from that community. We did do that. And, um, and, and it was exactly that. We we started introducing people to each other, and especially people who live near each other, and just in sort of a natural form of conversation. And it was actually in the Hispanic church. It was we were in like meeting um, to learn English or whatever we were doing, and I could inter say, oh, this woman lives near you and she has these same issues. And they started making plans to get together and then did get together and they built the really close relationships. And then in the English speaking church, we would, you know, we would say, will you come to church? No, those people are unfriendly. And we'd say, well, why don't you go and be the friendly ones? No, I don't want to. Those people are unfriendly. I was like, oh, okay. So when people would come and they would literally go into the church and now our church didn't have a foyer. So they, we actually talk in the chapel and Someone would come in and sit like way up front on the right hand side. So then the next person would come in and sit as far away from they could in the back on the left hand side. And they would sort of fill in like this, like trying not to touch each other or be near each other. And I can remember we would walk up with someone, we'd say, Oh, come here, I want you to introduce you. And we'd say, Oh, so and so, this is, you know, Mr. So and so. And he also drives truck or likes to work on cars or whatever. And they would look at me like, why, why are you doing this? And I, and I was, was hoping they'd say, oh, hi, good to meet you. <laughs> it was almost like I had to take their hands. This is what you say right now. Oh, good to meet you. Like that, right? And, and we had gone to a women's meeting. Now, usually when the women's meet in the middle of the week to work on some project, and what we were doing was crocheting little caps for new, you know, um, children who were born premature. And so I walk in, there's no lights on in the church except way down the hall I see one light in one room. And I walk in and there's like five sisters there, women, and they're not talking to each other. They're just crocheting away. So I said, oh, so how do I start? And the one woman said to me, oh, I'm not in charge. And so I kind of looked around and so I, and I thought, well, am I supposed to like tap everybody? Are you the one in charge? Or, which is actually what I ended up doing. Are you the one in charge? So someone who was in charge said, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's how to do it. Well, over time, without introducing them, and also they asked a new lady to be in charge of these activities, and she was like all over it. It was like party time for her. She had the whole church filled with decorations. She had all these activities going on and music playing, and people started coming out and actually talking to each other. In fact, you know, like on Sundays, we would have the women's meeting and we'd be sitting and every 
everyone was so quiet, they would just stand up and start it. But after a few weeks of this lady and us working, they were talking so that the person who wanted to start the meeting had to say, I'm ready to start now. We be quiet, ready to start now. So we actually started talking to each other. And I remember we had actually, this is so funny because we'd actually gone to the mission president and said, you know, these people are so unfriendly. And he said, yeah, I know. Why do you think I put you there? And I was like, well, I don't know what you think I'm going to do because I'm like an introvert, right? But somehow I channeled my sister, Kara, who is not, and was doing all this stuff. And so that after about a year, it was amazing how friendly they were. And a young couple had been renting there and they were wanted to buy a house. And they were they got up and said in church, we were so glad we were able to find a house in this church boundaries because everyone is so friendly and loving. It was like a complete flip from when we first went there. And I'm not going to take any or all of the credit because certainly other people were doing a lot of things to help make that difference. And what I get from that is it just it only takes a few people. And to go around and start finding out about people and introducing them to each other and helping, letting them know what, what they have in common. And, you know, people will just take off with that. People are basically good and scared, good and scared and a little nervous about, you know, yeah. meeting new people. So if you can help make that happen. Yeah. It's like a snowball, you know, you roll it down a hill and it gathers momentum. It only takes one or two people, doesn't it, to get the ball rolling, to get that snowball, and then it takes on a momentum, a life of its own. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Because we're gone, but I think they're still friendly. <laughs> but yeah, so kind of moving on, this was, you had by this stage said, okay, I'm done with this. I don't want to do any more, but they transferred to... <clears throat> Alaska, which um, I think your sister was hoping that you would be, you know, transferred there or would eventually or would eventually serve. And by this stage, you were like, kind of like, I don't really want to do this anymore. I've done it. This was your idea, Parker. So there was a, a kind of a disagreement about that. And eventually there, you know, there was agreement that if this was going to be done, if you were going to continue on volunteering or uh, being a missionary or serving, then he would have to field all the phone calls, make all the appointments. Um, and in that way, then you uh, had this agreement that you would continue on to Alaska. Unfortunately, the arguments <laughs> didn't quite stop there because <laughs> you wanted to see the beautiful sights and he kind of wanted to race on. Right. Sounds like a man and a woman, doesn't it? So, yes, um, it's interesting because what we had always said we would serve missions and and it was our, our our idea was we would always serve two missions but then i said you know we never really prayed about that it wasn't like god said we should serve two missions it was just our plan and we've served one and it was difficult it was um you know spiritual growth isn't easy it can be painful and i was like i'm done i really am done and i just want to go live a life and read books and whatever and he said, but we always said we'd serve two. Now, here's the thing about Parker. He really did act like I was the one in charge. And I was making all the calls and setting up appointments and planning the lessons. And because we did do some teaching or we'd have a message. We're going to go visit and we'll at least share this small message and have a prayer. And I mean, there was one when we visited. He didn't like her because she was kind of whiny and crabby. And he would just reach up and flip off his hearing aids. It's like he wasn't even there. I'm like, it was like it was my mission. 
questions. What are you doing? And so I said, okay, if we're going to go on a second one, then you're going to be in charge. I'm the one. I mean, I don't have hearing aids, so I can't flip them off. But you know what I'm saying? And so, and and he said, yes, he would. And I, and I thought, my sister had said, why don't you see if you can come to Alaska? Because we need some older couples up here, senior couples. And I thought, hmm. I would like to let God decide where we're going to go. I don't want to ask for a place. But we did talk to the mission president there. And he said, why don't you pray and see if you should come to Alaska? And I thought, well, that's, you know, darn, he's a good mission president because that's exactly what we need to do, right? And so we did pray and get a sense that we should at least ask if we could go to Alaska. Now, even if you put in and say, here's where I'd like to go, that isn't necessarily where you're going to get sent. But we did get sent to Alaska. And what I was worried about was being eaten by a grizzly bear and being where it's dark. And the day we got the calling, there was like these headline news is that an older couple who were very, you know, experienced Alaskans were eaten by a grizzly bear. And I thought, why? Okay. And um, I mean, when people think of Alaska, it's huge. It's huge. It's like almost half the size of the United States. And there's less than a million people who live up there. And most of them live in Anchorage. And so when you're out in other places, there might be 50 people and they call it a town and lots of scary animals there and it's dark and cold. So it turned out we loved Alaska. We loved Alaska. They actually have a show, something about the gold digger miners in Alaska. And there's some guy Parker and Haynes, Alaska, his grandfather had a place. We actually lived in Haines for a while and visited with his grandfather a lot. He was a very good Christian man. Um, so yeah, so we're here's what had happened. Just before we went to Alaska, I had been talking with God about this idea of forgiveness and repentance. And he in the New Testament there's this story about this guy who like owed a million dollars and it's that debt is forgiven him. Then he goes to someone who owes him like 10 cents and he's going to throw him in debtor's prison because he doesn't um, pay him the 10 cents. And, you know, the idea is, you know, God's forgiven us so much, we should forgive other people. And I, we were working with a woman at the time who had been uh, severely abused as, as a young girl. And, you know, we go out and try to hide in, in the chicken pen so that, uh, the person who was abusing her sexually couldn't find her. And she and her, most of her siblings were on drugs, which is not unusual when you come from that background. Some had committed suicide. And as I'm trying to teach her this story, I was like, I, I can't even do it because it seems to me like she's the one who's owed a million dollars and she owes 10 cents. What happened to her, right? And so we were showing her this little movie we show called the mediator and you can find it on youtube the mediator and in it there's a someone who's who owes a debt and this young man and then the, this guy who looks like christ comes and 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 it's about justice and mercy like justice demands to be paid and mercy is you know willing to say um it's okay and what this movie shows excuse me, is that when Christ um, pays, he basically pays the debt. And when we think of paying the debt, I think we think of punishment. 
But as I watched the movie, I saw the guy who represented justice, who was demanding to be paid because he was owed a debt by this kid, right? And the guy who represents Christ comes up and says, I'll pay the debt. He can't, but I will. And when I watched that, I started thinking, well, who is owed the debt? And I realized she was owed the debt. I'm owed the debt. People have had bad things. We've had bad things happen to us. And what Christ says is, I can make it up to you. That other person can't. Whether or not they ask for your forgiveness, whether or not they ever say you're, they're sorry, if you will turn to me and will forgive them the debt, because if you don't forgive them, then you're trying to get paid twice, right? Then I will somehow make it up to you. I will change your life. I will give you things in your life to make it better, to heal you from this suffering that you're going through. So now we're on this trip and I, I sort of have this idea in my head and we're going with Parker and it's, it's thousands of miles from up to Alaska. I mean, you have to go up through Canada and over and back down. There's no like road to uh, Alaska. And, and it's beautiful. And it was in the fall, beautiful time of year. And we were given a week to get there. And Parker's doing his 15 hour days. We leave in the dark, we stop in the dark. And I was like, you promised, like how many times will we get to make this trip that we could stop and see places and he wouldn't do it. And so now we're mad at each other because he won't stop. And I'm especially mad because he won't stop. And I'm saying to God, um, well, I might make this trip again, but I won't be doing it with Parker, I'll tell you. Like that, right? And he said, are you really trying to figure this out? And I said, yes, I would like to see how the atonement works here, which is really terrible. I know anybody listening to it who understands the atonement is thinking, what kind of selfish? Well, that's who I am. So, and God still works with me and accomplishes good stuff. So imagine what he could do with you. So that's what I'm thinking. And the thought came, um, I want you to calm down. And then say to Parker, I, I really thought this trip was going to be different. What can we, I want you to stop so I can get out and just see the scenery here, which is amazing. Um, and, and he did. And he pulled over and I got out of the car and just walked back in and was sitting. And then I was a little nervous because I was hearing some rustling and I thought it might be a grizzly bear because they had put a big sign up like don't camp here because there are bears out and it's in the fall and they eat you basically, right? And so I was a little nervous, but, and then I saw Parker come and just sort of walk by and didn't say anything to me, but I knew what he was doing. He was just looking to see, make sure I was all right. And went back and, and after all, I went in and sat down and I said to him quietly, I had hoped the whole trip would be like this. And he said, it still could be. And, and then it was, we took our time the rest of the trip and we stopped and saw things. And, um, but here was a thought I had, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, God could have said, but just reminded me, look, this is, he's a good man. You're fortunate to be with him and you're going to get there early. So you know, suck it up. Or he could have, you know, had the car break down. So like on our first mission where we're stuck, you know, <laughs> couldn't go anywhere. We would have had to enjoy the scenery. Or he could have happened what happened, which is that, um, you know, Parker gave me what I wanted just out of love. So it was, uh, it really was a sense of healing and that Christ was watching and, and he knew. Um, and, and that's such a tiny, tiny little thing, but it did 
make a difference. And I, I just know, you know, sometimes I tell this story and I pull out in the U.S. like a dollar bill. I don't have a dollar bill. To pull out. But on the front, there's a person. There's like somebody who knows who it is. Ben Franklin. It depends on what bill it is, right? And then on the back, there's like this building. And I said, when I look at a dollar, I think of that as like the atonement, the price that was paid for me. And the front, the one person represents me. This is me, where God takes all my debts and forgives me and extends mercy. And on the back is like this building full of people who have hurt me. And God said, I can make up to you what they've done. I won't give you back the same life, but I can give you a better life. And I am Jesus. And so I think it's like the atomic holds it out and says, do you accept this? Do you accept this? Because in the scriptures, it says, if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. It's almost as if, how can I take, I can't take just the front of the dollar. It's all or nothing, but it's all a gift. It's all a gift. We're healed of the grief and pain other people have caused us and the guilt and shame we feel for the hurt we've caused other people. And that's what Christ gives me. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a really um, introspective way of looking at things. It was a real kind of, uh, as I said before, like just some of your other pieces really caused me to think about the way in which forgiveness and atonement comes into my life. So it was, once again, it was really important that for me. Um, so really, obviously, when you kind of got there, it was a different um, way of living from Flagstaff, not only below temperatures, but how that you um, had to eat, um, had to heat, had to cook, all of your kind of preconceptions and your beliefs that you were ready to unpack had to be kind of like, well, okay, I need to put them aside. You know, I can't be a vegetarian up here. Um, I can't not kill anything. You had to immerse yourself in that life, especially when you moved on to an even more remoter sort of smaller village you know you had to participate in cutting up the seals you had to um, smack a fish over the head to kill it and learn how to gut it and stuff like that um just completely immerse yourself in that way of life in order to, to survive we um so we were living in katabu which is north of the arctic circle i mean it's north and we lived up there about nine months and it was, it's a native village and mostly it's the people, the Inuit people are there. And they have, you know, some people like us, white people showing up and they were very accepting of us, very welcoming. It was wonderful. And we had heard all this stuff, you know, about the elders and, and also subsistence living. It hardly seems fair. If you're down in the lower 48, you're like, well, how come they get to kill 50 caribou? and everybody else can only kill two, you know. But then we got out there and realized they, they, they not only do that, they do share. Like the, the fish, they were, they were starting to ice fish. It had frozen enough and the fish had showed up. And some older ladies, elders, were, they called them elders, were out there on the ice and they pulled out like 50 fish, brought them into town, shared them with everybody. And then the rest of the town went out there and started fishing. 
and you know parker was trying he went out and he and, and no matter what he did someone said he should have done it different oh you're not down deep enough oh you're down too deep you know like oh uh, couldn't catch a fish so as he's leaving he's coming back to town <laughs> this little old lady says to him oh no fish he said no i couldn't catch a fish he goes here take one of mine and that's how they were they really did um you know, if, if, if the fishing was good or the hunting was good, you got as much as you could and then brought it back to town and shared it. That's what it was about. And so it was, and the elders, how they treated the elders was amazing to me. They really did listen to what they had to say. And they had a community center and the elders would, you know, I mean, they hung out in the community center, but once a week they had a meeting. And I don't know what they talked about because I didn't go to the meetings, but we were working with their uh, history, their family histories, and they had a lot of information in the, ch the church was the Friends Church or the Quaker Church. And the Quaker Church uh, person actually called us, the priest or pastor, and asked us to put all their records in a database for them, which we did. And then the someone else called us and said they had a bunch of records that had been collected in the 60s and they were talking to elders who you know were born in the late 1800s and they had written their whole family history down and we transcribed all those and put them in and then we started making books for people like i was like one of these old southern ladies like who's your daddy like that right <laughs> who's your daddy and then i could print out a book for them with all their relatives. And we went in and one day we were walking, they were having their, um, who was gonna be elected as the mayor or someone. And one of the candidates, we walked by her and she said, you two yeah, don't know yeah. how much good you've done. And I said, how is that? She said, those books you've been going out have really stopped a lot of fighting. And I was like, well, how did that happen? And she said, yeah, well, they, because now they realize they're cousins. And I said, well, didn't they already know they were cousins? She said, well, they kind of knew they were related, but they didn't realize how closely they were related till they saw your books. But it had truly changed, I mean, the town. They were just, they stopped fighting about things because, hey, that's my cousin. And then um, I thought, well, you know, we know we've made mistakes. And so what we'd really like to have us, you know, like maybe go out to the villages. And the town was really good about being able to get federal government. They knew how to write a proposal where they could get some federal funds to pay for things that they were doing up there. And so I, they said, um, the mayor said, I, she was then elected mayor. She said, I, I think that's a good idea. That's exactly what we should do is take all this out to all the little outlying villages and have the elders go over it and make sure that it's correct. And then she said, but first I'm going to go meet with them and see if they think it's a good idea. I mean, she was the mayor. She could have made that happen. But she wasn't going to do anything until she went to where the elders were meeting and have them um, agree that it was a good idea, and, which I think she did. We eventually left. But then, you know, like once we were walking into town really fast, this is how they thought. I mean, this is what they were raised with. We're walking into town and, and Parker's hood is down so you could see his gray hair. And there's a couple of like 20 year old guys who are kind of drunk on the corner. And as we came, we were a little nervous, like, oh, what could they do? You know, they might do something. And instead, as Parker were high, they were like, oh, gray hair. Gray hair means wisdom. And that's how they were. And we went to you know, a town social 
And we're hanging back because in the lower 48, in the town social, the first people through the line are the kids or the parents with little kids, right? Everybody else kind of hangs back until the kids get fed, right? Well, all the kids come running up to us, grabbing our hands, like, we can't eat until you eat. Like, the elders, the people with the gray hair went through first, which is why I have gray hair. Because I was like, hey, that works for me here. You know, I can have gray hair. I don't have to diet. I want gray hair. So, yeah, just amazing. And I thought, what if people did that down here? We, older people, know so much. They know what's been tried in the past. They know what's in that shed behind the church where everything gets tossed when you don't need it anymore, right? So go ask them what they think. I can't even imagine it happening that, you know, some mayor in the lower 48 who would go, in, or I don't know how it happens in the UK, what you call them, would go to the senior citizen center and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? You know, like, why not? They know. Yeah. They've been there. They've done it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing to, to, to see that culture, to see that way of life and see, wow, this is the way it should be. You know, communal decisions, you know, uh, respect for the elders. And it's just, we've got, I guess, completely divorced from that down here. So absolutely, some kind of life-changing lessons. And we kind of tend to look at, you know, maybe not so much to a large degree, but certainly in some aspects of, you know, whether kind of more primitive people they are not as well educated as us. But really at the end of the day, those are the cultures, those are the societies that could teach us a lesson, that could teach us a, a, a proper and a better way of living. Yeah. Yes. And I just wanted to, um, I, you know, because you'd mentioned there briefly um, about the task that you realised you were up there for once again it wasn't about preaching the gospel but it was about sorting out these things and it became you know a monumental task and i wanted to just highlight how you know much time and effort that was put into that i mean you just had to get records history books ancestors uh, and the whole adoption scheme was massive you know such and such was adopted to x such and such was adopted to y having to untangle these all these family trees assigning proper records from um, uh, from different things and finding out who was related to who. And you've done that for like an entire month and um, getting boxes of oh, phone no, that was like eight records. All day, all day, a month, a month. Because we, we ended up with thousands of records. When we first started, we only had a few hundred. It took about a month. But then this person sent us a box of records. And I knew that um, they had two, I want to say two tribal, organizations. One is the one who tracks who could be part of the tribe and the other was looking at the tribal businesses because they did get a settlement from the government and as part of the settlement, they, again, they were still living a very communal lifestyle. They decided what they would do with the settlement as a group and everyone put in what they wanted to see happen with that money. Where down in the lower 48, they were no longer living a communal lifestyle they just gave everybody part of the money and they bought trucks and cars and then the money was gone, right? And so right up in Alaska, they invested in businesses and they still have money coming in. Well, at some point, those records had been given to one of those two groups. We don't know which one, but then they were never seen again. And what we had was copies and they even had notes on it saying recorded. So at some point they had been recorded, but the people didn't have access to it. So now we're recording them all. And it was interesting because they do have an adoption culture, which 
what I learned from that is that children know the difference between um, a choice and between necessity. So when parents died, you know, back in the early 1900s because of these um, flu, you know, like half of the town would die from that flu that went through in the 1918s and someone would go in and take the living children and adopt them and take care of them. They were grateful, but others, they were just like, oh, I have three girls and you have three boys. I, I can have one of my daughters and I'll take one of your sons. That didn't go over really well. You know, the kids were hurt by that. And I could look through because I was looking basically through time as I'm entering all of this, these names, and they would, what they would do is take a dotted line and draw it from uh, one family to another. And that dotted line meant that child had been adopted from this family into this other family. And so a lot of them really were hurt and you could see it. Then that line, I, I almost could predict what was gonna happen to that adopted child. They would end up um, having a lot of children on the, out of wedlock, they would not have very strong relationships, and they would often end up alcoholic. And so I began to rethink the adoption culture when it works and when it doesn't. Um, yeah, I remember one woman saying to us, they gave me away like it was a puppy dog, just very bitter and angry about how she was adopted from one family to another. And yet, you know, a lot of them had a lot of healing. So yeah, it was interesting experience. Things I learned from doing it and just the impact it had on the town when we were able to put these books together showing their relatives and how they were related. Hmm. It really was funny because I just started to recognize different families. Like, oh, this family has long faces, and this family has these little round with a dimple here. And I'd be like, hmm, I bet your, you know, Papa Joe's family or something. <laughs> hmm. I don't know why that was a gift, but it was a gift. As the mayor said, that was a gift to the town that we did that. Yeah, and yeah quite a part of your, yeah. It took up. It took up quite a part of your your time in Alaska. Obviously, there were other you know parts you know serving um, different individual members as you did in Flagstaff, and there were a few other kind of things. But eventually, you 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 um, you were transferred yet again. You were transferred to something. Uh, I think it's Sky Skateway, um, which seemed oh, to be a million miles away. Yeah, away from Alaska, where you know, you were kind of living in, instead of this. Uh, life of substance where you were kind of living this life of planting completely a different um, way of life. And, uh, you know, you mentioned there that you and uh, Parker had actually given up bickering on the first mission. And by the time that you got to there, you'd kind of given up on arguments in this one. So, you know, you'd become a lot closer and a lot more tolerant of each other. Um, and I guess it, one thing you learned there was it was all about the importance of family and stuff before you eventually left Skyway or Skyway. It was. We worked with families up there. We did similar things where we were helping people track their family history. And 
And I remember one family that actually joined the church. It was a mom and her daughter and their kids and the daughter's ex-husband all joined the church. And people said, wow, she is so different. And having it's amazing the change God can create in people's hearts. She just became a, a daughter, especially became a very different person. Someone said, I didn't even like her before, but now she's likable. Saw a, a miracle in the mother. She was on, um, on disability. And she couldn't even walk at that point. And when we met her, I mean, before she joined, when we met her, she was walking up to, you know, the front of the church to talk about the miracle that had happened in her life. And we, you know, it was good for us to see these kinds of changes in people's lives because you think, well, what, what difference does it really make? But people would say it did make a difference and share with us how it did. That was good. Yeah. I'm glad we went. Yeah, it seemed to be, yeah, seemed to be a nice kind of reward uh, at the end of your uh, missionary work from, you know, the, all of the uh, work and the hardship and the unfriendliness that you first encountered in Flagstaff to the um, frugal life of substance. Um, even though there was great beauty in Alaska, the real hardships physically that you encountered there so it seemed to be a kind of nice um, end, a nice kind of reward. And then on the way back, you actually did get to see, take some sightseeing trips, probably because you'd kind of sorted out your differences there. So it, it kind of you know, very do uh, dovetailed nicely into this kind of nice ending. Then you kind of end on the book where you are kind of starting out where you kind of started off. You'd sold a house and now you're kind of back to square one where you are looking for a house and again it ended up in a small miracle where we were talking about kind of earlier although you did have this business you still only had enough money to pay cash and you needed all these factors to come in it, it kind of needed to have a path away from the road you wanted natural uh, uh, natural gas pumped into it and it didn't seem uh, for a long time that you were going to get anything that you know kind of ticked the boxes until eventually once again you know you you uh, go and see this house and it seems to take all the boxes for like a third of what you were uh, uh, looking to pay and you get that voice to say you're not going to get a better offer than this here so you kind of got rewarded for all the sacrifices that you'd kind of made it did it did and it and we love that house it's interesting because not everybody knows this but there's places in the united states not many of them where um, if you have natural gas on your property, you someone else can go drill the well, but you get free natural gas. So, you know, it was like, well, we want that. <laughs> so, because we wanted to make sure we were going to be warm and, you know, have hot water. And um, so, yes, and we, we, we only had X dollars and everything seemed to be about twice that much. And then we ended up with this place that was about a third of that and and it was it was kind of a miracle the way we found it and and we loved living there we lived there about 10 years before we moved to florida and and it felt like we we were back where we started we had lived in a small mountain town with a small community and then we sold that house and we ended up in a small mountain town in a small community but our hearts had changed and it, I, I could just feel the difference in our marriage. We were so glad that we spent those years um, serving as missionaries. It made a huge difference. Yeah. 
you ended up where you started to in your first book, where Parker then was the leader of the local congregation, and you ended up as president of the Relief Society, helping the infirm and sick again. So you're, you've come full circle in your journey again. Yeah. And it's interesting because Brilliant. I was I was talking with Scott about, um, I think I put this at the end where I'm saying, you know, why, well, the question was, why did Sister Carla come to church? That's what God said to me. I'm like, people, you know, they don't want to come. And, we, and he said, well, why did Sister Carla come to church? And I thought, well, why did she come to church? I don't know why. And, and I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, she came to church because she knew I loved her. And, and that's really what it really, I mean, everybody knows that. You can say that. Oh, you know, what makes the difference? Love what made the difference. Love loved people. It made the difference. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was lovely. And obviously, yeah, just at the very end of the book, you know, you uh, have a little epilogue where you, you know, discuss um, what eventually happened to, you know, the people you'd kind of met along the way. So it was kind of nice as well for the reader to find out some of these characters which you bring to life in the book, you know, where did their journey continue after you kind of left them to bring some sort of closure, I guess, which was really nice. Yeah, because people are like, well, what happened with Jose Romero? And I was like, well, what happened with Jose Romero is kind of like, oh, my gosh, yeah, because here's the book, right? And um, so what happened with Jose Romero? Well, guess what? He didn't go to church. <laughs> he didn't change, and his family kind of falls apart. So just, you know, this, these are real people. It's nice if you write fiction. You can wrap it all up nice and neat, and they, you know, they're like perfect, right? But that isn't what happened. So Sister Beatrice and Raphael, they're still busy. Oh my gosh, and she just gave us food all the time, right? And um, oh, Sister Sister Charity, right? The woman baptized just for, but we left. We were afraid she'd get offended. And she did get offended, but she kept going to church anyway. And then Ronnie, we had been teaching him, we didn't talk about him here. And he ends up back in prison, and his girlfriend leaves him and moves him with a married guy. And they just kept being themselves. Sister Carla, you know, I said, Bill, she, she is so paranoid and so suspicious that um, I don't think she'll be nice about us after we leave. And then when we went back to visit, they were like, do you know what she says about you? And I was like, like you stole money from her and you did all these terrible things. And I was like, yeah, I kind of knew that's where I was going to go because <laughs> who she was. Like people just keep being who they are, right? Yeah. Hmm. Funny. We had a good time. Yeah, really, really nice. So, um, what uh, what's the plans for the future? Because I know that the first time that I've spoken to you, you were actually working on a third book, and from reading the second book, I know that that's still a work in progress. It it is so close to finished. Um, I have it all written. And I was trying to figure out what order to lay it out in, and I wanted to make sure. So I wanted to have like the key parts. And so that's all done. It's all organized. I know what the key parts are. Just yesterday, I finished going through and making sure that I had everything. And the first third of it has been critiqued, and I'm sending it out to beta readers right now. And then I was hoping to have it finished, you know, by the end of September, and then maybe by the end of the year. But now Christmas is coming, so um, we'll see how close I get because I, it's not going to take too much more work. And I hope next um, year, I, I am going to actually try to get a traditional publisher for that particular book. I bet the other books is self-published because 
we actually owned a publishing business, so that made sense at one point. Yeah. And it has 3,000 copies, so you know it's it, it did okay for self-published. And but I'm going to see if this one I can get a publisher. I'm going to give it like six to nine months, and if I don't, then I'll go ahead and just let people know it's out there. Maybe. Okay, I will, that. That. I will look forward yeah. to that. Yeah, Parker and I, the match made in heaven. What happened with Parker is I, I was a single mom and I still had eight kids. Um, most were in college or finishing high school. And God said to me one day, you're going to meet the man you're going to marry next fall. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> like, why would I want that? Because I have two teenage sons still at home. and I can't even see how that would work out. And um, it's interesting because I was telling my aunt about it. And I said, I know God's trying to give me a gift. And he and I don't want the gift. And she said, well, how do you know you want, don't want the gift? You haven't even met the gift yet. And so I met Parker. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this is a match made in heaven, right? God said, I'm going to meet someone. I'm going to marry him. This is Parker. And uh, he, he came from a background with an abusive alcoholic dad. And it was, wow, it was not what you would think of as a match made in heaven, right? Because I, we've already talked about Parker and I arguing and having to come together over things. And then that promise was given to me that all would be made whole as a result of this marriage. And because I was thinking, why would I even stay in this marriage? Like, it's not like we have kids together or anything, right? But we, it, it's been 20 some years now and it's been a journey. And I, so what I share is you know, the, the standard things we went through that we were able to work out and create a healing marriage to ourselves and for our children. And I actually called them and said, I, I didn't tell you about this promise, I would say to him, but I have the promise. Has this marriage been healing on any level for you? And they've all said yes, and then shared how. So um, yes, the last thing then that I wanted just to ask is where then can people find you, Margaret? Where can they, if they want to go to your website and uh, to read more about you? I know that um, you, oh, if, if they want to purchase your books, where can they find you? I know that um, also you do little readings from your own book on your YouTube channel, which is nice to hear it in your own voice. So just let people know then where can they find you and where can they find your books. So in hisfootsteps.com and the main page in hisfootsteps.com has the links to the books and and the first two are both audiobooks at this point. And also my social media, including some YouTube videos where I'm reading and sharing some of the stories and then I, I have a, I'm not going to say I have a blog, I have a newsletter. And once a month, I send out this newsletter. And it'll have a short story in it, something we hope is inspirational, uplifting, and sometimes a little funny. And, and um, anyone who signed up for that newsletter will be the first to know when this third book is finally out there. So, and you don't have to worry about getting spammed because I'm lucky I get one newsletter a month done. You're not going to get more than that. So, yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Really, really enjoyed our time, Margaret. So fascinating reading that book. As I said, it was such an easy book to read, but because there was so much character and so much um, depth to it, 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 it was a really, uh, really kind of in-depth, you know, review or kind of interview, interview about it. I really wanted to do it justice. 
And I guess just before you go, I just kind of wanted to ask, you know, throughout that period of your life from selling up the house to returning back and purchasing the new house, is there maybe one kind of key lesson or kind of key um, idea or piece of inspiration that you could maybe share, especially for people who are thinking about starting down that path of becoming missionaries or wanting to serve in a greater way? I I say, you know, like I said in the first book, turn it, turn it over to God. For us, it really was, what do you want us to do and how? And that, and he answers those questions and will direct our paths, you know, for good. He does do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and just be willing, trust. Yeah, absolutely. Margaret, thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this interview. It's one of my longer interviews, one of the shortest books I think I've read, but one of the longest interviews. And I think that speaks testament to the type of book that it was, that the characters that you brought to life, the sources of inspiration and the ponderings that I'd done from some of your inner reflections, Um, about the nature of atonement, about the nature of faith and belief amongst the other things. What does it mean to have your own preconceived ideas of what way you should operate in the world um, when you're faced with a community and environment in which you're forced to survive in a way that, you know, is not contrary or is contrary to your current beliefs. So I think it's a real testament to to that book. And um, I just want to say... Thank you so much for that piece of your life and sharing these characters and these people and for showing that ways to serve doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of grandiose uh, way in which we're kind of at the pulpit or at the head of a ministry attending to our flock. It's generally the small ways in which we can make a difference in people's lives that make the matter to or mean the most to those people. So thank you so, so much. Thanks. Thanks, Zenith, for having me. Absolute pleasure. And no doubt we will see you again for a third time. Let's just hope it's not as long this time. Or you get that third book done. Get that book done. That's right. Mm, Thanks. Mm.